I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Got and each of those pivots was, I think, rooted in this belief that anything is possible, that I get to write my own life story, and my story doesn't write it for me. My story doesn't become my identity. I get to take control, and I get to determine the direction of my life. Got you there with Shonda Laney. Ozan Barol is a rocket scientist turned award-winning professor and author of the new book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, simple strategies you can use to make giant leaps in work and life. A native of Istanbul, he studied astrophysics at Cornell University and served on the operations team for the 2003 Mars Exploration Rovers. Varol later became a law professor at Lewis and Clark College. On this episode, Ozan discusses strategies and frameworks learned from his time as a rocket scientist that we can all use to make advances in our own lives. Hey, it's Sean. And before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to share what I've been working on behind the scenes for the past few months, and that's my new technology job hiring startup called Culture Finders. Culture Finders is here to save the millions of people from working in jobs they hate and dread going to every day. If you've ever been in a job you can't stand or hired someone who looked great on their resume but turned out not to be great and destructive to your company's culture, then listen up because Culture Finders is for you. Culture Finders is a technology-backed talent matching service that connects job seekers with employers based on optimal culture matching so both parties can seamlessly merge together. When you create a profile, you'll receive your culture connection score and get matched with your dream company based on maximal compatibility and shared interest. To create your profile, all you have to do is play our fun brain games, uncover your unique personality profile, and answer a few questions. That's it. You're just a few clicks away from connecting to the opportunity that's been waiting for you. If you're a job seeker looking for that dream job or run a company who wants to save the headache of bad hires, head to culturefinders.com to get set up with your culture connection score today. That's culturefinders.com. Ozan, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you for having me on. Yes. Uh, we were just talking here a second ago. Anytime someone puts out work, I really do enjoy it. It's always so much more enjoyable for me to talk to them. But before we dive into your work, I'd love just to get a little context into who you are, where you came from, and some of those experiences. So let's begin back in Istanbul, where you grew up. And I'd love to know just what led to you developing that deep fascination for both astronomy and astrophysics. You know, I was, so I grew up in Istanbul and, um, we were living in the small apartment and I was probably like four or five years old and we used to get blackouts all the time, which would just terrify me. And my dad came up with this game. Whenever we had a blackout at night, he would grab my soccer ball and then he'd light a candle and then he'd rotate the, the soccer ball around the candle to show how the earth rotated around the sun. And those were my very first astronomy lessons, and I was just hooked from the get-go. And as I grew older um, and started to learn English, I began to develop a, just a fascination with science fiction. So I would just devour books by, you know, like Isaac Asimov, for example, was, was one of my favorites, Arthur C. Clarke, Ray Bradbury. Um, and I would watch the, the original Cosmos series uh, by Carl Sagan uh, before Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, did the show. And, and so those were my first entryways into, into a fascination with astronomy and astrophysics. And I knew if I stayed in Turkey, my path would be limited in many ways because Turkey didn't have a space program, whereas in the United States, you know, that's the frontier of rocket science, NASA, and, and I had watched footage of... Neil and Buzz walk, walk on the lunar surface, and that was where I wanted to be. And so my escape ticket out of Turkey was getting admitted to a university in the United States. So I applied to the, like the top universities for, for astrophysics um, and got into Cornell, uh, which was very exciting for me because 
you know, Carl Sagan, one of my personal heroes, used to teach there. And a few weeks before I arrived on campus, I uh, emailed, I, well, I, I was researching what the astronomy department was up to. And I saw that one of the astronomy professors there was in charge of this um, NASA-led mission to Mars. It would eventually be called the, the Mars Exploration Rovers mission. Um, and I, there was no job listing, but I emailed him out of the blue and just, you know, expressed my burning desire to, to work for him. And um, thanks to my, the coding skills that I had taught myself in high school, he invited me in for an interview after I arrived on campus, and, and I got the job working on the operations team for these, for these two rovers that ended up going to Mars in 2003. Was that Steve Squires? Yeah, that was Steve Squires. Excellent. No, no, you, you mentioned the Cosmos uh, and Carl Sagan, and yeah, deep-rooted fascination with me as well, and we were fortunate enough to, to talk to, to his wife, Andrianne, uh, not too long ago, so, so a big oh, amazing. fan. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I lo- love that series. It sounds like, though, a lot of this was just this, this self-taught learning and deep-rooted curiosity. Is that true? It is, yeah. And, and I think, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to my parents here. I think a lot of well-meaning parents stifle their children's curiosity. Uh, my parents did the opposite. They gave me a lot of autonomy when it came to the really important life decisions and also just sort of like allow me to pursue my curiosity wherever it might lead. You know, to them, there was no like crazy questions. They just let me explore and play. Um, because if you, if you watch children, they're all naturally curious and, and self-driven. But then a lot of social conditioning and particularly the education system kicks in to stifle much of that, that curiosity. I'll give you an example of uh, how my parents went about encouraging my curiosity and my self-driven nature. Um, this must have been when I was, again, around like four or five years old, probably four. Um, the, the way that kindergarten system works in Istanbul is like, you know, there was like four or five public kindergartens that were close to my, my house where we lived. And you could, you could have your pick. And my parents went to all five of them and picked two or three that they thought would be suitable for me. Um, they came home and they said, you know, it's time for you, Ozan, to start kindergarten. And you get to pick which one you're going to attend. Um, and, and so we went and toured. And, you know, they didn't tell me this, but they had already settled on three, basically, that they were equally acceptable to them and they let me pick so we went into the three kindergartens and I would ask them like the questions that I thought were important at that age you know what kind of toys they had and what kind of books they had Um, and in the end I picked the kindergarten that I ended up attending and that really was a formative moment for me and very much emblematic of of the way that my parents raised me I mean they did set some boundaries certainly um and, and one boundary in the case of this decision was, you know, for them to filter out the ones that they found acceptable, but then they gave the ultimate choice to me. And that was really empowering. Um, and I carry that mindset throughout my life. Yeah, if you're fast forwarding to later in life, uh, I'm thinking if, if you're running a business or even a small team to kind of set some guardrails, some parameters, but then giving your people the autonomy, uh, is that hold true today? Exactly. Yeah, that I mean, that is so, so, so important. Um, And and I've done that with, you know, all of these pivots that I've had in my life. I started out in astrophysics and worked on the the Mars mission and then did this complete 180 and and went to law school, later became a law professor. And then I branched off of academia to do writing books like Think Like a Rocket Scientist and, and speaking to corporate audiences. And each of those pivots was think rooted in this belief that anything is possible, that I get to write my own life story and my story doesn't write it for me. My story doesn't become my identity. I get to take control um, and I get to determine the direction of my life. Um, and uh, yeah, and that all goes back to, to the way that I was raised. That's a very powerful feeling when you take that approach to life, isn't it? It really is. I mean, it can be super scary too. <laughs> I have to say, like you know, with every every major life pivot I've made, it's just you know, there's so much uncertainty when you you go from astrophysics to law, from practicing law to becoming an academic. 
at each juncture, you're jumping off a cliff. Um, and, and you're not only jumping off a cliff, but you also don't know um, what's going to be on the other end and what's going to be on the ground to continue to the analogy. Um, but there is also, um, wait, let me, let me restart that. So at every juncture, you're, you're jumping off a cliff and not knowing what's going to happen, but you also become a beginner too. So you move from being an expert in something to becoming a complete beginner. And that's a huge blow to your ego, right? Because you know, when I, when I went from, um, and I'm still a law professor, this is actually, this is gonna be my last year of teaching, but when I, when I went from doing just academic work to, to branching out and, um, and starting my blog and my podcast, it was really scary because I went from being like the sought after name in my subspecial field of comparative constitutional law, being a you know recognized expert in that area to becoming a complete beginner. I was, in, I was a nobody um, in the blogging world when I first started. And, and that transition I think is what keeps a lot of people from, from making a change because they think, look, I've already established a name for myself. There is a significance to my story. There is a significance to my title. And I'm not going to risk that by starting something new. Um, and whenever I find myself in that position, there, there's a number of things I do. But uh, one of the things I do is there's this poem I love from Dada Markova called, I will not die an unlived life. And in the poem, she writes, I choose to risk my significance so that what comes to me as seed can move on as blossom. Um, and what goes on as blossom can move on as fruit. And so whatever I, I'm afraid of, of making a leap into the unknown, her words come echoing uh, in my subconscious, that line particularly, I choose to risk my significance. And it reminds me that I've got nothing to lose and potentially so much to gain. Um, from from taking a leap, so that that poem is 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 constantly on my mind when I'm making that switch. And then I also ask myself two questions, whenever I'm afraid of making a a pivot or a major life decision. One is, what's the worst that can happen? Um, and I've found it really useful to actually write down what's the worst that can happen. You know, moving from being a lawyer to, to a law professor, well, I'm giving up this career in the, in the practice of law um, and I might not never be a lawyer again, which actually, and if you probe some of those stories you tell yourself about what's the worst that can happen, you find that, that those are just stories. I could always go back to being a practicing lawyer if I uh, didn't like academia. But it's also important to ask what's the best that can happen. Uh, we often tend to focus on the worst case scenarios when it comes to dealing with uncertainty. But what's the best that can happen is a really powerful and really important question to ask that most of us don't ask. Um, you know, going back to my high school senior year, when I was sitting in front of that computer typing an email to Steve Squires asking him to give me a job on this Mars project, um, what's the worst that can happen was, you know, he'd probably never respond to my email again. Uh, or he'd never respond to my email and I'd never speak to him again. That was the worst that can happen. But what's the best that can happen is I'd get a job working on this dream mission to Mars when I was just daydreaming about space in my small room in, in Istanbul um, to actually having the front row seats to the action. Um, and so those two questions I ask myself on a, on a fairly regular basis, whatever I'm afraid of, of making a leap some simple exercises but just so profound I, I love there that when exploring the depths of your fear you're able to tap into that poem as a, as a source of strength and then those two questions I absolutely love the second one as well uh, in terms of what's possible there and I think one of the great things is when you can refocus that and understand that the most potential value we essentially find at, at the limits of what we're capable of and the only way to do that is to dive into the uncertainty and this is certainly one of those uncertain times. Anything else you do when facing uncertainty? Yes. So, and I sort of alluded to this, but it'd be great to dig deeper into it. So um, there's a difference between one-way door and two-way door decisions. And we assume, especially when we're operating in conditions of uncertainty, that if we make a leap into the unknown, if we take a new job, if we move to a new city, if we accept a promotion, 
and things don't work out as we hoped, that life as we know it is going to come to an end. That is a story that most of us tell ourselves, that the decision we're making is a one-way door decision. There is no turning back. But most of our decisions in life happen to be two-way door decisions. In other words, you can step into an uncertain environment, uh, this dark room. You can walk inside, turn on the light switch. If you like what you see, you can stay. If you don't like what you see, you can always walk back out. Um, so going back to the example I, I mentioned of, of me leaving the practice of law to go into to academia, um, the, the, I agonized over the decision for months, making you know every pro and con list imaginable. But once I framed the decision-making process in terms of one-way door versus two-way door decisions, the decision became much easier. It was clear to me when I thought about it through that framework that this was a two-way door decision. If I went into academia, didn't like what I saw, I could always go back to, to practicing law. Um, so, and, and a lot of the decisions that look like a one-way door decision are actually two-way door decisions. You, you have to dig a little bit deeper to, to think through, to see what you can do to create an, an exit route for yourself if it looks like a one-way door decision. And a great way to do this, by the way, is to run experiments. I run a lot of limited experiments with my life um, to see what works and what doesn't work. You know, I did this a lot with my, uh, with the marketing of my my book, for example. This was my first mainstream um, nonfiction book, and there's just so many things you can do with the marketing of the book, and and you don't know what's going to work until you try. There's a lot of uncertainty, um, and the only way to figure out to reduce uncertainty is to run small experiments. So that's what I did. I like experimented with different tactics to see what worked and what didn't work. And if something didn't work, I just abandoned it. And if something worked, then I doubled down on it. Um, but I think that experimental um, mindset, along with this distinction of one-way door and two-way door decisions, goes a long way, at least for me, of, of reducing the, the threshold to getting started, number one but also reducing the fear associated with uncertainty. No, I, I love the one-way and two-way doors. I, I use that in some of the businesses I'm involved with when making certain decisions. Uh, I, I would love even just to kind of circle back to some of the marketing strategies you've used, just because I'd love a real-world example. Do you have any that in terms of how you were testing different strategies just to, just to paint a clearer picture? Sure, absolutely. So one of the things I, I thought about doing, and I remember distinctly I was just sitting in my I had just given a keynote, I think it was in Boston. I was sitting in my hotel room. And so the book came out on April 14th and this was November. Um, and I started announcing the book to my email list right around then basically. Uh, now the problem is, of course, if you're asking someone to take out their wallet and place an order for a book uh, in November, when the book won't be published until April, that's a pretty big ask because there's such a, a gap between when they actually make the payment and, and, and the time that they receive the book. And so I was just thinking to myself and creating a list in my hotel room of like, well, what can I do to provide value that's tied to the book now? And I had this idea of creating bite-sized videos. Uh, so three-minute videos with actionable insights from the book. And I thought to myself, all right, I'll just do like five of these. I'll record them and then I'll give them out as a bonus for for ordering the book. And I just, at that moment, I went back to the book, picked out what I thought were five of the sort of the most important principles. And I sat in my hotel room, pulled up PowerPoint, created a very simple presentation and then recorded those five videos over the span of like, the whole thing took me an hour basically because I already knew the content. I had written the book. I just took out the parts that I thought were really important and, and created these videos. And then I sent an email to my list the following week saying, if you pre-order the book, you get these five videos. And you know, at the time I had zero idea about how the list would respond to that, how my readers would res respond to it. Um, and again, you know, the alternative is for me to sit in my hotel room and create every pro and con list imaginable to man uh, or I could just try it. So I tried it and I had very low expectations and it turned out to be a massive success. I mean, that one email, um, I think within a span of like 24 hours generated hundreds and hundreds of sales. 
So then I ended up recording another set of five <laughs> videos um, and, and distributed that in like earlier this year. And then I did two more right around the date of the launch for a total of, of, of 12 videos. And, and, you know, the thing that I thought would not succeed turned out to be massively successful, um, which really goes to that experimentation mindset. It's we spend so much time trying to figure out the best course of action, the best choice, the best decision. But you don't know what's going to be best until you try, uh, until you get some data, until you see what the consequences are going to be. And the best way to do that is to experiment. Such great advice there. And then I love the, the little experiments, the, the one you were mentioning, that only took an hour of your time when you're in the hotel room. But what you can gain from that is just so exponential. How do we battle this then, the, the popular phrase out in Silicon Valley about fail fast? Hmm. What is your take on this? Yeah, so the mantra is really popular. Uh, and, and not only is the mantra popular, but Silicon Valley has now adopted this posture of um, celebrating failure. Um, Silicon Valley companies are now holding funerals for failed startups, complete with like backpipes, DJ spinning records, um, alcohol flowing freely. There are conferences dedicated to celebrating failure. I don't buy it. And I don't buy it for two reasons. First, when you celebrate something, you don't learn from it. And number two, just because you're failing fast and often doesn't mean you're actually getting anything out of failure. And research backs that up. I, I cite two research studies in, in the book, at least two research studies. One is of 6,500 cardiac surgeons and they follow them over a course of, I think about 10 years. And the surgeons who had botched a particular procedure ended up performing worse on later procedures. So not only did they not learn from their mistakes, but they ended up reinforcing their bad habits. In other research studies from the business world, it compares the success rates, which the researchers defined as taking a company public, of failed entrepreneurs, so entrepreneurs who had previously started a business and, and they had failed, um, and they compared the success rates of those entrepreneurs versus first-time entrepreneurs. Now, you might think that people who had started a business before, or tried at least, and then failed at it, would have a better chance of succeeding the second time, but that turned out not to be the case. The success rates of first-time entrepreneurs versus failed entrepreneurs are virtually identical. Um, now, why is that? Well, I think it's because when we fail, we tend to externalize it. So we blame other factors. We blame bad luck. We blame the, you know, the consumers. We blame the regulators. But personal culpability usually doesn't make the list. Um, and so what happens then is when we don't do that soul searching, when we don't figure out what went wrong, um, when we don't figure out the bad decisions we made, the mistakes we made, we end up just repeating the same behavior over and over again. So failing fast ends up being moving from one failure to the other, doing the exact same thing that you did before, but hoping that the, that the wind blows in a better direction. Um, scientists in general take a, a much different approach to failure. The goal with experiments is not to fail fast, it's to learn fast. The goal is to get data. Uh, and by the way, failure can be the best teacher if you know how to approach it properly. Um, if you know how to do the kind of soul searching that's required to isolate the bad decisions you made and, and so you can make sure that, that you, don't, you don't repeat them again. Um, and and one, of the, one of the other things that, that scientists do when it comes to failure is, is to keep in mind that all breakthroughs are evolutionary, not revolutionary. Um, we're not going to succeed. If, if you're trying to, if you're listening to this and you're trying to, reimagine the status quo in your field or create something transformative, you're not going to succeed on the first try. Like Einstein's first several proofs for E equals MC square failed. Um, Thomas Edison famously said, I haven't failed. I just found 10,000 ways that, that don't work. SpaceX, Elon Musk's space company, their first three launches were spectacular failures. Um, but as long as you're learning from each failure and improving with each experiment then, that you're running, then you're eventually, in the long term, 
going to accomplish extraordinary things. And SpaceX is a great example of this. Just a few weeks ago, they became the first private company in history to put people um, into space and, and into the, the International Space Station. Um, so the opening doesn't have to be grand as long as the finale is. And the best way to make the finale grand is not to fail fast, but to learn fast. Yeah, that moment a few weeks ago from SpaceX just absolute chills down my spine getting to watch that. I love that. You were mentioning about kind of the, the difficulties of that soul-searching process mm -hmm. and facing those harsh realities. So when you do fail, are, are there specific things you do to, to hold yourself accountable or to actually learn from those? Yes, I do. So one of the things I do is uh, first, part of the reason why we externalized failure and blame it on other people is because we we say to ourselves if i admit that i made a mistake if i admit that my decisions resulted in this failure that i am a failure and and to me there's a huge difference between a failed project and a and a person as a failure um, because the moment you say i'm a failure um, then it's going to become really hard for you to do that sort of objective soul searching because now you basically tied your identity, your ego around this failed project. You, the failed project and you became one and the same. And it's going to be really hard to separate the two, to distance the ego from the failed project and, and be able to look at it with, with some perspective. Um, and so that's really the, the most important step for me is to just reassure myself like I am not a failure. This thing failed. I'm not a failure, um, and let me now take a look at what I can learn from it. And, and so, and I call this sort of this this moonshot debrief. Uh, and whenever I'm taking a moonshot, whenever I'm experimenting with something, and I do the same process, by the way, after failure and after success. That has a way of of taking the focus off of the outcome and pivoting me back to what matters, which are the inputs, the processes, the decisions I made. And I asked myself, you know, what went wrong with this failure? Um, why did this fail? What were the decisions that turned out to be bad? What were the mistakes I made? Um, and I write them down. So that's step number one. The other thing I do is, and this also helps lessen the blow on the ego, is to ask myself, what went right with this failure? Um, we tend to assume that, you know, when we fail, all of the inputs were bad. Uh, at least some people do that, right? You, they sort of equate the, the inputs with the outputs. So if the, the outcome is a failure, then that must mean every input, every decision that went into that uh, was also a failure. But that's, that assumption isn't correct. It is it's possible to do some things right and still fail. And I think that the most successful people and the most successful businesses are really good at honing in on what were the, the right decisions here and what were the wrong decisions, regardless of, of outcome? And then you retain the right decisions, you double down on them, and you fix the wrong decisions. And I do the exact same process after a, a success. Uh, you know, not only should you ask yourself, well, what went right with this success, but also what went wrong with this success? And where did I get lucky? <laughs> where did opportunity play a role here? Uh, because if you don't ask yourself that question after success, then those mistakes you made along the way that were concealed by the, the, the glaring outcome, the, the high beam lights of success, are eventually going to snowball into something that you may not be able to control. How do you go about measuring skill versus luck in your own success? That's a great question. Um, and it's really hard to do. Yeah, that's a very hard one. <laughs> yeah, really hard one. And, and often it's a matter of like having done the same thing a number of times and, and sort of like looking at it um, from the perspective of, say, you try something three times and, and, you know, you succeeded once and failed twice. And then you look closer and you're like, okay, you know, the first time I succeeded is because I got lucky. Uh, but you need that time horizon, I think, to be able to really separate out skill skill from luck. Um, and so that's number one. And number two is often I find outside perspective useful in figuring out um, that distinction between skill, uh, between right decisions and, and luck. 
And so my wife, Kathy, is, uh, she's a sounding board for, for everything I do. And she brings an outsider perspective to what I'm doing. She's very good at calling me on my bullshit, basically. <laughs> we all and she need can those. bring it. <laughs> yeah, and she can bring an outsider perspective to what I'm doing, even if she doesn't know anything about what I'm writing about or what I'm doing. She can bring an outsider perspective and ask me those questions that need to be asked and help me see my blind spots that I might be might be missing. Uh, and again, this doesn't have to be an expensive consultant that you bring into your business. It can be as simple as, and it's really important, I have to underscore this, for this person to be an outsider, for this person to be not familiar with whatever problem you're working on. And we tend to dismiss the opinions of those people because we say, well, they're amateurs. They don't know what they're talking about. They haven't been in the relevant meetings, but it's precisely because of that that their opinion is valuable. Um, outsiders have a really good way of coming in and asking those, like what we call those dumb questions that are actually not dumb at all because they go to some fundamental assumption that, that every insider is missing, but the outsiders can point that out because they don't know the status quo. They don't know your habits. They don't know your processes. They don't know nothing about the conventional wisdom, which means it's easier for them to spot the holes that the insiders are missing, uh, which is why so many of the, you know, the revolutionary leaders of our generation, uh, and not just our generation, throughout history, have been outsiders to whatever industry that they were disrupting. So Elon Musk was an outsider to the space industry. Uh, he picked up rocket science by reading textbooks on a beach in Rio de Janeiro after he sold um, PayPal to, to eBay. Jeff Bezos, he was in the finance world before he started Amazon. Reed Hastings, the co-founder of Netflix, he was a software developer before he disrupted the, the, um, the movie streaming or the movie rental business. Sarah Blakely, who's the, the world's youngest self-made female billionaire, was selling fax machines door-to-door -door before she started Spanx, the, the underwear company. So all of these gatecrashers were able to see what the insiders were missing and 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 spot the flaws that allow them to to capitalize on those flaws and to replace those outdated assumptions with something much better no that's fantastic taking a, a very difficult topic to understand and laying out those two excellent frameworks in terms of understanding time horizons and then also the outsider's view one other thing and I, I'd, I'd love to see if there's any holes or ways i go about this one way I try to distinguish between luck versus success is just doing a decision journal. So when I'm making a mm. big decision on the onset, I, I write down why I'm doing this. So that way, six months, I can go back and I can say, oh, you know what? No, I'm, I'm trying to create a new narrative in my head. This is actually why I made that decision. Are there any ways I could do better with my decision journals? I love that. So I think it, it is really important um, to to keep track of not only the decisions you made, but as you said, Sean, of why you made those decisions. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's also good to keep track of your why over time. Um, I tend to do that with anything I start because sometimes the why changes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and sometimes it's okay for the why to change, right? Because you're, as you start out on something, you're getting data from the real world if you're running the types of experiments that we talked about. Uh, and your why over time can can change. And, and that's totally fine. Um, but if you're keeping track of it and why you're changing your why, basically, uh, I think it keeps you honest. And it also allows you, uh, at least for me, personally speaking, it allows me to make sure that I'm doing the, the things that I'm doing for the right reasons. Because if, if, if I don't doc document my whys, then it's really easy for my ego to jump into the driver's seat and do things simply for the gold star, right? Simply for the accolades, simply for external accomplishments. Uh, but my why in the world, my general why is like helping people reimagine the status quo for them to question conventional wisdom and, and find a better way forward. Um, and everything I do, every decision I make, is through that through that filter. That's the broad umbrella, and then of course there are smaller whys within that that change over time. Um, but keeping track of those is really important to make sure, for me at least, to to um, to know that I'm not being driven by 
ego, um, ego obsessed metrics like outcomes and I'm doing things for the right reasons. And as you said, Sean, that also helps you then to identify um, and distinguish between skill and luck. Um, and because the time horizon is so important, keeping a decision journal like that allows you to, to have a written record of, of what you did and why you did it. And I think the other step in this is review. Um, so it's one thing to document decisions and why you're making them, but if they're just sitting there, um, then they're collecting dust. And, and it's great that to write them, but I think it's also important to have a process for going back and, and doing reviews at the end of each project. So I did this for my book, for example. So the book launched on, on April 14th, and it's been selling really well despite the pandemic and everything that was going on in the world. But I sat down and basically reviewed all of the decisions I made up to that point and why I made them um, while everything was still fresh in my head. And I was able to pinpoint the bad decisions and I was able to pinpoint the good decisions as well. Um, and so, you know, going back to the video example I mentioned, the reason why I knew that that wasn't just luck was because I tried it three times. Uh, and I had a record of exactly how many book sales each video bonus produced. And the same basically bump in sales resulted every single time I announced the bonus. Um, and, and so looking back on that, I knew that this wasn't, I mean, there might be some element of luck, but it wasn't primarily luck because the same result was obtained um, all three times, basically. And so, so I made a note of that. And now, you know, the next time I, I release a book, I know exactly what to do and, and what not to do. This might be a little nuanced, but when you're actually sitting down and mapping out those decisions, what does that look like? Are you just putting them down in a notebook? Or are you putting them in an Excel file? I know it's a little nuanced. I'd just love to hear. No, totally. I think I think these are great questions. So what I've been using is a um, a software called Rome Research. Have you heard of it? I have heard of it and done a little research on it, but I have not started to use it yet. Yeah, I mean, it's a really intuitive way of, of taking notes. So the way that most note-taking systems work, it's top-down in the sense that, like, for example, if I'm writing, going back to the decisions I made with respect to the book launch, if I'm writing something about um, yeah, what went wrong and what went right with respect to my marketing decisions in the lead up to the launch, I would first find the note, right, that I had created for my book marketing, go in there, start a new, a new thing, a new block, maybe a new sub page within that page, and then jot down my decisions. The way that Rome works, it just flips it on its head. So you you start the day and each day is, it the, the, there's a new note for each day. So to, I'm actually looking at it right now. It just says June 23rd, 2020. And there is an, an empty bullet point and you just write. So I'm going to write right now, you know, the decision I made with respect to the video um, turned out to be well. And you can put brackets at the end of that saying book marketing. And that bullet point gets automatically added to your book marketing note. So it's a way of sort of building notes from the ground up. And I find it really intuitive in a way that the top-down approach isn't. It just created a lot more work for me. So now I'm using Rome and I absolutely love it. It's really revolutionized the way that I, I take notes. I find it much more intuitive than, than traditional note-taking programs. And I use it all the time because that way I can have 10 different bullet points with different hashtags at the end of each bullet point. And those get automatically cataloged in the right place. And then I can just type, you know, book marketing, and that will pull up every single reference I ever made to book marketing um, in a really speedy way. Yeah, I feel like I've been on that hamster wheel of finding a great note-taking system now for years. So maybe I'll have to, to dive in and finally check out Rome Research. You, you used the phrase a moment ago, from the ground up. And I would love to know your from the ground up approach to learning new things. So I'm not talking about skills you already have and, and trying experiments. What if you're approaching an entirely new subject? Where do you even begin? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I do a number of things. So I'm, I'm trying to think of like what, um, what things I've learned recently. Uh, let me actually begin with, I'm going to begin with what not to do. And then I'm going to switch to what. Yeah, that's to always do. very helpful. That's okay. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So what not to do is copy and paste other people's tactics. 
So what, and especially this gets really amplified in periods of uncertainty. Uh, but in periods of uncertainty, we tend to copy and paste what other people are doing, assuming that they know something that we don't. And so if you're say starting a blog or an email list and, um, and that's something that you want to learn how to do, how to blog and how to, how to create an audience um, through email, you could look to other people and copy and paste their tactics with uh, maybe marginal changes. And that approach usually doesn't work well. It doesn't work well because you're not asking yourself the strategic questions of what are these tactics actually serving? Um, and by the way, imitation eventually makes the trend obsolete. So one of the trendy things to do right now is, is boost your following on Instagram. Uh, I think that's an advice that you probably hear quite frequently when it comes to growing an audience is, you know, jump on Instagram and, and grow your following there. Um, and then people go and sort of copy the tactics that other people have used to grow their, their Instagram followings without pausing and reflecting and asking, well, wait a minute, Instagram is just a tactic. These people, uh, what they're doing to grow their Instagram following is just a tactic. What is the strategy here? What is this tactic in service of? Um, if you don't ask that question, then you're simply copying and pasting other people's tactics and assuming that if you just repeat what they're doing, you're gonna get the same results, which turns out not to be the case. In, in many cases, you can't copy and paste somebody else's route to success. So what I do is to ask myself the more strategic question. So for example, if I'm, if I'm looking online and, and say I wanna, um, you're listening to this and you wanna write a book someday and, um, and one of the things you have to do to be able to get a traditional publishing deal is to have an audience and you might jump on Google and search for ways, tactics to build your audience and you'll probably find articles on how to grow your, your Instagram following and you might jump and just start doing that right away. That approach is flawed. Um, the better way to approach it would be to ask, well, what is Instagram in service of? What is the broader strategy here? The broader strategy is building an audience who's one day going to buy your book. Um, the strategy for book marketing for me was trying to get the ideas in the book out to as many people as possible. When you define the, when you find the strategy, of actually what you're trying to achieve and you define why you're doing what, what you're doing, then you're able to pinpoint the tactics that are not going to be successful to that ultimate goal. Um, if you look at the data for Instagram, for example, it works for some industries, it's terrible for authors. Um, for authors, if you, the, the data shows, email lists tend to convert a lot higher than social media like Instagram does. Um, so that's one of the things I, I do whenever I see people, whenever I see methods online of doing something, I always ask myself, are, is this a tactic or is it a strategy? Um, and the way I do that is tactics usually tend to be the what questions, right? The tools you're using, the actions you're taking, and then strategy tends to be the why. And if you move from the what to the why, you'll be able to step away from flawed tactics and often see what other people are are missing. Um, and so that's something that I do on a, on a regular basis. No, that's very helpful and, and something you can obviously apply across multiple domains there. I take it and just based on, on your career so far and the number of different domains you seem to be able to already conquer, that you're just a, a continual improver, continual learner. If we're thinking about a musician or even an athlete, they, they practice certain things every single day. Are there certain things like that where you're operating more in a knowledge space that you're doing every day? Writing, uh, I do every day. And and I, um, I'm i a big believer in deep work and I I highly recommend Cal Newport's book with the, with the same title there. Um, and in writing, I approach it as very much like a workout. It's all about reps and sets. And the more that I can write, um, the better off my thinking is going to be. Uh, 
Because I, I often find that, like, I don't know what I think about something before I write it, <laughs> before I write about it. So I'll sit down every morning and carve off at least two hours to, to sit down and write. And it could just be writing and, you know, pulling up a note and in, in own research and just, just writing free flow. It might be writing part of a book chapter. It might be writing a new blog post. But that's how I figure out, number one, what I think about something is actually putting that, it down on, on, on paper. And number two, it's also a great way to learn what you're digesting. Um, often we're so busy with consuming information. You know, we're, we're reading books, we're reading the news, we're reading blogs, we're listening to podcasts. And all of that, I mean, it's like a sieve. Um, it just sort of moves through you without sticking because you're not doing anything with that knowledge. And for me, writing about what I've read, reflecting on it, is a great way and then sharing what I've written with other people is a great way for me to to internalize what I'm intaking and and making better better use of it um, and one of the other things I do is when I'm thinking about a subject I write about it first before reading what others have written about it um, and the reason I do it is if I just jump into looking to what other people have said about something inevitably my perception is going to be colored by what they've done. I'm going to be anchored in their opinions and that's going to completely skew my judgment. Um, and so before just jumping into Google and, and typing search queries to try to figure out how to do something or, or what to do about something, I just, I just write and I, I, I put down my own thoughts about it, which is one of the key things to creativity is 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 developing that um, that mindset of of carving out time to do independent thinking before looking to to what other people have done. Um, we're recording this, you know, in late June, and and there's been so much written about how creativity is going to blossom during the pandemic because people are, you know, stuck at home and they have time to write the great, the next great American novel. I'm much more skeptical about that uh, because I think our digital consumption has, has skyrocketed during the pandemic. Uh, people are probably, if, you know, if what I'm seeing around me is representative of the, of the general population, people are reading the news a lot more than they used to in the past. And they're not really carving off time for a, a digital quarantine of sorts, as opposed to just a social one, to be able to sit with themselves and their thoughts and put them down on paper. It's amazing the number of original ideas you can generate if you simply carve out time to do nothing but think every day. Uh, so that's something I do with my writing. Uh, I also have a practice of like, sitting either in my recliner or I go into the sauna with a, with just a notepad and a pen uh, or a pencil and no distractions, nothing. It's just time for me to sit and think and then jot down thoughts that come up. And some of the best ideas in recent memory have occurred to me in those moments of slack. This is why, by the way, people tend to have great ideas when they step into the shower because they're stepping away from distractions and allowing their subconscious to kick in and to connect the dots that are um, that are in their brain. Uh, but if you're constantly hustling, if you're busy clearing out your inbox, your email that inbox at all hours of the day, you are not giving your mind the slack it needs to make those connections. Um, as the saying goes, it's it's often the the silence between the notes that makes the music. I love that. Ozon, there, there's too much good information here. I, I want to dive back into your writing process prior to taking on others or expert advice there or opinions on a certain subject. Mm -hmm. So if you don't know much about it, what does that writing process look like? It's honestly just free flow. So if I'm thinking about something, um, say, I'm, I'm trying to think of a of a recent example of this. Okay, yeah. So I I um, I written this article this was a few months ago, about diversification. Uh, and there's a lot written about diversification when it comes to like finances, right? You don't want to just invest in all of your money in Amazon. Uh, well, maybe you may have wanted to do that 10 years ago. <laughs> uh, but, but, the, but the goal when it comes to financial instruments is to diversify so you're not putting your, all of your eggs in one company's basket. So you're not putting all of your eggs in one industry's basket. Um, but actually 
spreading out your investments across different industries. And so if one industry is hit hard, then the other one stands. Uh, and I was thinking to myself in one of these moments of Slack, like, what if we take that idea of diversification and actually apply it to our identity as a person, um, which I didn't, I had, I didn't know anyone had talked about that before, had written about it before. I could have jumped on Google and and typed in, you know, phrases, search phrases for what I think might be on point, like identity diversification, creating multiple identities and the like. And then I could have just begun reading what other people have written. Instead, I sat down and I started jo uh, jotting notes for myself. And I started to think about like what it means to diversify your identity uh, and why that might be useful. And, and I was looking at, you know, my own life and I had diversified my identity by, you know, not only being a, a law professor, but I, I had a podcast, I have a blog, I do corporate speaking and all of these different levers. And, and I look back on that and I said, well, wait a minute, like, why did I do this? <laughs> what is the benefit of, of spinning these multiple identities and why might it be useful? Um, and then I just started jotting some thoughts about why that might be the case. I think one of the upsides is when you're dabbling in different things, you're allowing room for cross-pollination of ideas. You can take ideas from one industry and apply them to the to to others. That's how a lot of innovation started. It's like what's common in what's common in one industry tends to be breakthrough in another. And so this allows me to take ideas, for example, from rocket science and apply them to business or apply them apply them to law. So that's one benefit of that, I thought to myself. Another benefit of it is is taking the sting out of failure. Um, so when I have multiple identities, when I'm playing in these different sandboxes, and if one of these identities isn't going well, so for example, let's say like, you know, the pandemic happened, a lot of in-person events got canceled. And so my corporate speaking came to an end. I later sort of pivoted to a virtual format, but setting that aside, I think my speaking platform uh, that I think I know took a took a pretty major hit. If I had defined my identity only as a speaker, that would have been crushing. Um, that would have been really hard, both financially speaking, but also from an ego perspective. If that's the only thing you do and you can't do it anymore, that's a, that's a huge blow to your ego. But if you identify it as a number of different things, well, okay, so the speaking thing sort of went away for a little bit. Well, I can lean on the, the blog. I can lean on my day job as a law professor. Um, and so, so I came up with these ideas and ended up writing uh, a blog post about it before I read anybody else's take on, on point. Because if I had done that first, if I had read somebody else's take, what I would have put down would inevitably be colored by what they were saying. And if I had anchored myself in their opinions, I may have missed some of the insights that actually ended up appearing in my blog post. That is excellent. I, I, I've been so busy here just taking notes. I feel like every single one of your answers uh, I could unpack in, in 30 different ways there. But one of the things I'd love to hit on is you talking about the cross-pollination uh, mm. and pulling from different fields. And that's one of the things I like about your book because it's it's clear that you've studied a lot of different fields. What about for someone just kind of looking for some new things to pick up off the bookshelf? Any books that you've gone to over the years that you've really enjoyed? Yes. Um, so what I would recommend, and I'm, I'm happy to give you specific book recommendations, but what I would recommend is for you to not just read the books that other people are reading. Because if you read the just the books that other people are reading, you're going to think what they think. Um, but for you, and one of the things that I, you know, before the pandemic took so much joy in was walking into an indie bookstore and just looking at the shelves and looking at old releases, not just the new releases, not just the shiny new object that everybody's talking about, but look back at the books that have stood the test of time. Just walk the shelves uh, and see what jumps out at you. It's incredible what that exercise has done for me. Uh, some of the ideas that happened that ended up in the book came as a direct result of that practice, as a just a result of me picking a random book off of a shelf at a bookstore, flipping to a random page and reading what's on that page. Um, 
So, and that's a practice that anybody can can cultivate. It's it's it takes some intention because the way that things work these days is like, well, you hear about a book on a podcast, and then you go to Amazon and you buy it. There is zero room for serendipity. There is zero room for unexpected insights to come about. Um, and so you have to be intentional about it, which means walking into a bookstore and, and browsing the shelves. Um, and, and so to that end though, and to, to the idea of cross-pollination, uh, you know, one of the books I really enjoyed, and this is a new release, it's fairly new release, I guess, at this point, it came out, I think a few months ago, but David Epstein's Range, uh, why generalists triumph in a specialized world. Uh, if you're interested in this idea of the benefits of cross-pollination, I think that's an excellent, excellent book to read. Um, and if you're looking for an old release, uh, some of the language in the book uh, is outdated, uh, but the, the ideas and principles I really enjoyed reading about is called Teaching as a Subversive Activity. Um, and it's basically... The, the thesis is that our education system is completely broken because it's built on this model that's based out of the, the industrial age where, you know, an authority figure steps up in front of the classroom and conveys knowledge to students. And then the, the students just sit there, passively intake that knowledge, and then they spit it out on the exam. Um, and the book talks about how that is just wildly disconnected from reality and offers alternative ways, uh, not just to teachers, but to parents, to business leaders, to go about generating change and developing the, the creative thinking and critical thinking skills and the people that they serve and the students and the children and their employees, that's so necessary to, uh, to thriving in the real world. Uh, and the book was written decades ago, but it's just as important um, uh, now than it was when it was written. No, Ozan, thank you for, for providing that framework in terms of how we can find new things that are different from what everyone else is reading, because I'm in agreement there. Uh, you definitely need to be reading outside both your comfort zone and, and then what everyone else is. And then David Epstein's book, Range, uh, we've been fortunate enough to have him on, and that is an excellent read. I have not heard of the other one, so I'm looking forward to diving into that. But let's let's dive even a little bit more into, into your book here as we wrap up, Think Like a Rocket Scientist. First and foremost, what is it like to be a rocket scientist? Uh, you know, rocket scientists tend to be thrown in their own corner. <laughs> you know, it has the saying, right? It's not it's rocket science or it's not rocket science. You know, this is this is just reserved for geniuses. Um, and I wanted to bust that myth and and write a book about how you don't have to be a rocket scientist to to think like one. Uh, and so the book is not about the the science behind rocket science. But it's about the frameworks, about the creative thinking and critical thinking skills that you can apply regardless of, of what you do. Uh, so I wanted to write a, just a really accessible book um, with nine simple strategies from rocket science that anybody can use to make giant leaps in, in work and life. Um, and, and you ask, well, what is, what, what is it like to be a, a rocket scientist? I, I opened the book with... Um, with telling the story of President John F. Kennedy stepping up to the podium at Rice University Stadium and pledging to land a man on the moon um, and return him safely to the earth before the decade was out. Now, at the time, that promise, that pledge was quite literally a moonshot. People in the audience thought that Kennedy was crazy. Um, NASA officials thought that he was out of his mind because so many of the prerequisites for a moon landing hadn't been invented yet, hadn't been done yet. No American astronauts had worked outside of a spacecraft. Two spacecraft had never docked together in space. NASA didn't know if the, the lunar surface was solid enough to support a lander. Um, JFK said some of the metals required to build the rockets hadn't even been invented yet. So we, we, we jumped into the cosmic void and hoped that we'd grow wings on the way up um, and grow those wings we did. Neil took his, Neil Armstrong took his giant leap for mankind just less than seven years after Kennedy's pledge. Um, and just to put that in perspective, I mean, a child who was six years old when the Wright brothers took their first flight, uh, which lasted like 12 seconds and moved 100 feet, would have been 72 when flight became powerful enough to put a man on the moon. Hmm. I mean, that giant leap happened 
within a single human lifespan. That's just 66 years. That's an astonishing speed. And we tend to attribute that, that giant leap to technology. But really, it was, it, was, it was a giant leap that should be attributed to these rocket scientists and to a thought process that they used to turn the seemingly impossible into the possible. And I wanted to share that thought process with the rest of the world and help non-rocket scientists think like a rocket scientist and, and look at what seems like impossible and what seems like science fiction and actually create, well, turn that into fact, turn science fiction into fact, take what's seemingly impossible and, and turn that into the possible. Yeah, Ozan, something I want to highlight is just how accessible your book is and the, the frameworks, the strategies. Believe me, you do not need to be a rocket scientist. This was a read I really did enjoy and got so much useful, practical, applicative uses that I can use across business, my own life. So I, I appreciate the work. One final question, then we'll let the listeners know where they can stay connected with you. If you could sit down for an evening of interviews with anyone dead or alive, but but not a family member of, or close friend, who would it be? And I, I can pick just one person. If you've got multiple, I'd love to hear. Okay. Um, the first person that popped to mind was Albert Einstein. Uh, perhaps an obvious answer, but I, I you know, the, the, I wouldn't want to talk to him about, you know, his special theory of relativity. What I would want to talk to him about is how he managed to retain his childlike curiosity for most of his life. Um, that goes back to something we talked about before. How curiosity is just beaten out of most people uh, over time. But how he managed to be, how he managed to approach the world with such wonder and such inquisitive thought, and how he managed to not do the copying and pasting that that few people in his field were doing, and managed to like write this groundbreaking paper on the special theory of relativity when he was just a you know a patent clerk in a swiss patent office uh, a complete outsider to the physics establishment um how he managed to do that and how he managed to retain that over time because it's just it's so so hard to do um so his name definitely um definitely jumped to mind and then you know and, and another name that jumps to mind is uh, and I mentioned her name before by Sarah Blakely. Um, and I really admire her relationship with, but first of all, she seems like an awesome person having like watched interviews with her. She's just so charming and down to earth, uh, despite all of her accomplishments. But I want to probe her approach to failure because it's, it's so refreshing. Um, in, in, in a society, well, we, we have these two extremes that we talked about before. Either you fear failure to such a degree that it becomes paralyzing, or you celebrate failure and you learn nothing from it. Um, and Sarah Blakely, from what I've read about her, takes this middle ground approach and she attributes that to uh, the way that she was raised. Her father, when she was growing up, would ask her uh, two questions regularly. What have you failed at recently and what did you learn from it? And Sarah credits much of her success to, to those two questions because by asking those questions, her father gave her the breathing room to tackle interesting problems and yes, to fail from time to time. Um, for him, failing to try was far more disappointing than, than failure itself. So I think she'd be a fascinating person to, to talk to, not only because she was a complete outsider to the industry that she ended up disrupting, but I think she has a very refreshing, um, very refreshing approach to to failure. And then I'll add one more name to the list. And his name also came up, but Carl Sagan. Um, he is he's such a hero of mine for so many different reasons. Steve Squires, the professor I worked for at Cornell, was actually a graduate student of of Sagan. Uh, sadly, Sagan had passed away by the time I I showed up on on the the Cornell campus. Um, but he's a fascinating person. And I love his work, not just the, the you know Cosmos, but but Contact, which is the the movie uh, is based on a book that he wrote. Um, and he just had this 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 amazing mind. Um, and then one final person that just came to mind would be Richard Feynman. Um, and I highly recommend the book. Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman, to to those listening. Um, he's a Nobel-winning physicist and really esoteric character. Uh, 
And he had, I mean, he lived a life of cross-pollination. He dabbled in so many different things. He defied all sorts of stereotypes that you might expect from, from a, um, a Nobel winning physicist. And I, you know, I think he'd make for a great conversation partner. What I would do to have a, a dinner with with all four of them. Incredible answer. Ozan, the book is Think Like a Rocket Scientist, Simple Strategies You Can Use to Make Giant Leaps in Work and Life. Excellent read. I love the book. Where else can the listeners stay connected with you if they want to learn more? The best way to stay in touch with me is not social media, as we discussed. <laughs> I have social media accounts, but I'm, I'm not active on them. So the best way to stay in touch with me is through my email list. And you can sign up for that by heading over to weeklycontrarian.com. The email goes out to over 22,000 subscribers every Thursday and just share as one big idea that you can read in less than three minutes. And again, that's weeklycontrarian.com. We'll have that linked up in the show notes. But once again, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. My pleasure, Sean. Thank you so much for having me on. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.